Hey there, podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's Physics Central podcast. I'm Mike Lucibella. The Manhattan Project looms so large in the history of physics that it can be hard to know how to tell its story. On its surface, it was the giant secret physics project during World War II to split the atom and build the first nuclear bomb. But that doesn't come close to capturing the innumerable experiences and perspectives of the hundreds of thousands of people connected to the endeavor. Today, one group called the Atomic Heritage Foundation is taking the lead in helping preserve as much of the history of the project as possible. Hi, I'm Cindy Kelly, president and founder of the Atomic Heritage Foundation. They're working to establish a national historic park to preserve some of the Manhattan Project sites in Los Alamos, New Mexico, Hanford, Washington, and Oak Ridge, Tennessee. To help them tell that story, they've created their Voices of the Manhattan Project website. We have, for the last 12 years, made an effort to record interviews uh, with as many Manhattan Project veterans as we can. They've amassed an amazing trove of interviews. Kelly has personally talked to dozens of people who worked on nearly every part of the project and brought together even more interviews done by others. We think that the voices of the people who were the creators and eyewitnesses and, and participants uh, are critical to understanding uh, the context of the times, uh, their contributions, the challenges, and so forth. It's one thing to read a history of the project, but hearing the stories from the people who were there gives it life and a lot more depth to their perspective. History is evolving. There's no such thing as uh, the definitive account. So it's interesting every decade is sort of sees history in the prism of its own time. And that's very tempting uh, to do with the Manhattan Project as well. It's a great way to peer into the complex morality of building the first atomic bomb. This effort will help people understand that these scientists were conflicted in some cases, you know, looking back 50, 60 years later uh, about their role in, in, in bringing in atomic weapons to the world. Others understood that uh, this was what scientists do. They have to know. They wanted to prove that they could see if they could harness this energy. And it's also just a good reminder that not just scientists worked on the project. There were over half a million people who were involved, some as construction workers, some as the top scientists, and everything in between. And they have very differing perspectives. It's the kaleidoscope of history. The website features a huge range of stories. They have great physicists reminiscing about other great physicists. I didn't know anything of Oppenheimer before I went there, and his, his name was new to me. This is Nobel laureate Roy Glauber talking about physicist Robert Oppenheimer, who oversaw the Manhattan Project scientists. He was not a terribly well-known theorist in those days, except among theorists. Uh, he uh, had a rather, quite a deep understanding of the physics and, and a marvelous facility at expressing himself. But uh, he, Oppenheimer, commanded the not just the loyalty, and, uh, but the respect, uh, deep respect, of, of uh, everybody who was at Los Alamos. Uh, and I cannot think of anyone else who would have succeeded as, as he did in, in, in that sense. But more than that, there are the stories of the people that history has largely overlooked. Sterling Achenschloss Colgate was a high school senior at the Los Alamos Ranch School, the private college prep school in New Mexico that the military took over to become the Los Alamos Laboratory. 
And uh, so we were all speculating of what, you know, I mean, how useless can it be to put do anything up here on the Mesa? It's so hard to get water. There's no transportation, naturally, railroads and so on. It's just a crazy place to do any war thing. Like anyone would, they started guessing as to what the Army wanted with their old school grounds. You know, we used to kid, even from the very beginning, that what kind of image have we got, a science fiction type uh, sci-fi here with white-coated scientists. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> but we knew enough about the issue of the day, whether fission could be used to make a um, chain reaction, an exponentiating reaction by uh, the neutrons or whatever, by the neutrons particularly. And we all knew that as some, you know, kids doing a physics class. And it was on the headlines of papers in those days. But the burning question was, is whether in the fission of uranium, in this case the isotope 235, because even that was known in those days, before the bomb, uh, would it emit enough neutrons to support a chain reaction? So when those two showed up and this place had already been overrun by a mega bulldozer, there was absolutely no question in the minds of a couple of us smart-ass kids that uh, this meant that the fission ratio was greater than two, and therefore, without question, they would be making a nuclear bomb. We didn't misname it an atomic bomb. We called it a nuclear bomb. And so when we did leave the Mesa, there were at least half a dozen of us who knew exactly what they were doing, and two of us who knew exactly how to do it <laughs> without ever, you know, it, 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 physics is physics. You don't, it doesn't, it isn't that, that big a deal. The seniors from the prep school were really the exception, though. Secrecy was so tight that most of the people working on the project had no idea what they were building. Most people were like Celia Klemsky, who was a secretary at the Oak Ridge, Tennessee site where they enriched uranium. Here she remembers first learning that what they were making was the first atomic bomb. Well, you know, we heard it on the radio, and, and they talked about it, and of course we had celebration up in the town site, you know. That's the first we knew about it. Because I didn't, I hadn't heard about it before then. Gladys Evans, who also worked at Oak Ridge, offers a hint as to how the real truth could have been kept hidden from so many people that way. You couldn't say anything to anybody about where you work, the building you were, when you left the plant. In fact, there were huge banners up all over the plant. When you leave here, what you see here stays here, and you weren't allowed to to tell even anybody. The one thing that just intrigued me, they had these three monkeys. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And I've always thought those were real cute. But in a $10,000 fine listed under each thing, if they caught you, that in jail, $10,000 in jail. And there was a reason for all this secrecy. There were spies. Klaus Fuchs was the most notorious, but there were others like David Greenglass. Los Alamos chemist William Spindle remembers being approached by the undercover agent. I knew David Greenglass at Los Alamos well, the machinist, and he he actually tried to get me to to serve as a spy. I mean, he he the 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 line then was, "Don't you think it's not fair of us not to share this with our great Russian allies?" I mean. They're fighting for us. Why aren't we sharing 
this information with them. And I said to him, look, David, I, I, I'm not necessarily uh, against sending it, sharing it with them, but nobody elected us to make these decisions. You know, I mean, to do it would be espionage. And you've got to be crazy to do it. It took nearly four years to build the atomic bomb. Jack Aby was acting as an official photographer on the morning that the bomb was first tested near Alamogordo, New Mexico. And by the time I got around to the, uh, the actual test itself, I only had four exposures left on the film I had taken down there. So <laughs> I had to hoard it very carefully. And uh, that, that was a serious error because that was the most interesting part. He snapped some of the only color photos of the enormous fireball rising into the sky that morning. The last three pictures were okay, and the middle one was a pretty good exposure. And somehow the theoretical division got wind of that, and they confiscated the photo for a time. And they uh, actually did one of the first yield measurements by measuring the width of the fireball and... uh, an estimated time of when that was made, and they could back calculate to something resembling a good estimate of the yield. All these interviews are just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many fascinating little-known stories just waiting to be discovered at the Voice of the Manhattan Project website. You know, thanks to the Atomic Heritage Foundation for letting me use these interviews, and especially to Cynthia Kelly, who conducted most of the ones you heard today. You can find more Manhattan Project stories at manhattanprojectvoices.org. Also, you can find more of our own podcasts, blog posts, resources, and so much more at www.physicscentral.com. Thanks for listening.